Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm the show's producer, Bill Lynch, filling in for Mason Adams. The year is winding down, so we're looking back at some of the stories we told in 2022. We took you to the floods in eastern Kentucky, where you met people who witnessed terrible destruction. We saw buildings that had just, you know, debris and, and outside furniture and, you know, piled up along the sides. It was, it was a horrifying experience. We also invited you along as we talked to Appalachians who know a little something about resilience, like Dolly Parton. Whatever the mountain is, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to climb it until I can see what's on the other side. Because you invite us into your homes, we invited you into ours with a special trip to Mason's hometown in Floyd, Virginia. And I tell people all the time, I said, you come to dance? And they said, no, we're just curious. We want to hear the music. I said, the music is good, but I said, when you get out on that floor, it's another world. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Bill Lynch. This week, we take a look back at 2022. Like most years, it was full of ups and downs, and we try to tell you about some of both. Appalachia, like the rest of the country, has had its share, or even more than its share, of problems. Poverty, the opioid epidemic, food and healthcare deserts, and the struggle to educate our children. They're as much a part of the landscape of Appalachia as the mountains and trees, and we don't ignore those either. In January, our host Mason Adams spoke with West Virginia Public Broadcasting education reporter Liz McCormick and highlighted the problem of the teacher shortage in West Virginia. When I spoke with Carla Warren, she's the Director of Educator Development and Support Services in the West Virginia Department of Education's Office of Teaching and Learning. She talked about how a shortage is anyone in a teaching position at a school who is not certified. So this could be a substitute teacher without the right training, but they're in a class because they're needed there because there's no one else who can be in that position. This could be a teacher who hasn't quite gotten all the certifications they need in one subject and they're teaching a different subject. Or this could even be a principal stepping in to fill a class to teach that class because, again, they don't have someone to fill that position. So the the idea of a shortage kind of is broad, but it's anyone who is not certified teaching a course. So a lot of Appalachia, and especially West Virginia, is seeing this shortage. Um, What are some of the reasons why this is happening here? Yeah, Mason, that's a really good question, and it's multifaceted. You know, I think of three particular areas from my reporting that that look at this particular issue. And the first one is West Virginia has an aging population. We have a lot of teachers who retired, especially when the pandemic started, because a lot of those older teachers were, were concerned about their health, and so they retired. We also have a lot of substitutes who are older as well. And so a lot of substitutes weren't making themselves available because of the same issue. They were concerned. And then also in speaking with Carla Warren, she used this great description. She called it this leaky bucket where, you know, there are just so many teachers who are retiring, but not enough new teachers coming out of our universities who who are coming into the profession. So it's just this constant leaky bucket The second area is, you know, these federal COVID dollars. And West Virginia received over a billion dollars, that's a billion with a B, to help our 55 counties um, respond to the needs of COVID. And that goes all the way back from when the pandemic started to um, the American Rescue Plan. And these federal monies created additional positions trying to help this shortage, but there's no people to fill them. For an example, one county superintendent told me they now have 16 new positions to fill, but no one to fill them. So that's increasing the shortage there. And then the last area is this pay issue. Um, and, you know, we, we see in our border our border states that there's more competitive pay for, for K through 12 teachers there than there are in West Virginia. And so that's just another issue here of why we're seeing a shortage, particularly in West Virginia. So we're seeing shortages across the board for a lot of different reasons. Where are the areas where there's the greatest need? Yeah, so there are five areas that are seen as a critical shortage in West Virginia. Um, Those subjects are math, science, special education, elementary education, and counseling. How about geographically? Yeah, that's a good question. So of course, the majority of these critical shortage areas, these five areas, we're seeing the most of that shortage in southern counties. McDowell County comes up a lot, except what's interesting, McDowell County does not come up in the special education needs. So according to the West Virginia Department of Education, McDowell County does not have a critical shortage of special education teachers. But also it should be noted um, 
which I think is just interesting, is that of this critical shortage, we're seeing this critical shortage in Kanawha County, which of course is where Charleston is, the capital city. And we're also seeing some of the critical shortage in Berkeley County, where Martinsburg is and where I live, and is also one of the fastest growing counties in the state. So I, I think, you know, we're, we're, we see this shortage all over the state, no matter of how wealthy one county is versus another. So we're talking about the thousand teacher vacancies in West Virginia. But I, you know, from my experience, these numbers are just snapshots. They're constantly changing. And not only that, like I understand from your reporting that this may be a questionable number. There's some discrepancies between the county and the state numbers. Can you tell us about that more? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, in my reporting, I learned that um, what's posted on the West Virginia Department of Education's website, their database of vacancies, does not necessarily reflect what the vacancies are in our 55 counties. And the reason for that is because, um, as was described to me by the West Virginia Department of Education, West Virginia is a local control state. So counties are not required to post their vacancies to the State Department of Ed's website. And so what ends up happening is, you know, you'll go to the West Virginia Department of Ed's website and look up, for example, Jefferson County. And I'm going to use Jefferson because it was the focus of a story I did back in October. Um, In October, Jefferson County was reporting that they had anywhere from 130 to 214 empty positions on a given day. And that could be a vacancy um, that could be either a true vacancy or it could be that someone's out because perhaps they're on quarantine because of COVID. But if at the same time that month, if you looked at the Department of Ed's website, there were only six vacancies, just six in Jefferson County. So a huge difference. So, of course, these discrepancies just make it very challenging to realize how vast the vacancies truly are because we don't really have a solid idea on a statewide level until this study from WVU came out of exactly how how vast these vacancies are. So this is a big problem across the region, and I imagine people are at work on it. What what are some possible ideas to fix this? Yeah, so that's a really good question. Coming out of this this conversation we just had about the discrepancies and between the West Virginia Department of Ed's vacancy postings, and what might be posted locally in a county, one thing that the department is looking at is trying to fix that. They're trying to create this sort of centralized posting site um, of K-12 vacancies in the state. Um, Now, this is not something that is official yet, and it's possible, though, they may have to go through the legislature to enact it. It's, It's not quite clear to me yet at this time, but it is something that they are talking about because they do recognize that that is an issue, not having it all in one place for people to find. But then another area that they're really looking at to try and fix this issue is is a residency program. They're they're working on recruitment. So this new program began this past fall, fall 2021. And the goal of it is that by fall 2024, the traditional student teaching model will be phased out and all new teachers in their final year specifically will be doing these year-long residencies to really help them get immersed in the community. So it's it's longer and more immersive than that traditional student teaching model. What's also really interesting about this residency program is West Virginia is just one of two states that is offering this residency model at the undergraduate level. These types of residencies are offered more at sort of the master's level, and we see them across the country, but not so much at the undergrad level. So the West Virginia Department of Education is is thinking that this is putting them ahead um, and, and going to help keep teachers here. Because when a teacher does these residency programs, they, from the start of a new school year, they begin in a school, and they're with that same school and that same teacher through the whole year until the end of that school year. So they basically truly get immersed in what it is to be a teacher. The state's teacher shortage continues. In August, West Virginia Education Association President Dale Lee said he expected close to 1,500 teaching positions statewide to be vacant during the school year. An official report from the West Virginia Department of Education is expected before the end of the year.
Last winter, we also visited Helvetia, a little Swiss village in the hills of West Virginia. That's close to Monongahela National Forest. Residents can trace their heritage back to Switzerland, and the town preserves and shares their culture and traditions through famous festivals like Fasnacht, which happens in February, the Saturday before Fat Tuesday. So you still have time to plan. In Helvetia, you can sample Swiss dishes at the Hutte restaurant and browse local goods at Swiss Roots, the community store. One of these goods is a homemade cheese called Appalachian Alpine. Its makers are a retired couple whose new hobby has revived a lost recipe. Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin brought us this story. I'm in the basement kitchen of Theron Morgan's house in Helvetia, West Virginia. Lining the shelves are rows and rows of home canned goods, and we're halfway through the process of making a block of cheese. It kind of gets milky at first, kind of a lumpy, like a soured milk. She's describing a pot full of cheese curds, which she's elbows deep in, carefully cutting the warm curds up by hand. It just feels like, um, oh goodness, like jello. Theron is a third generation descendant of Swiss immigrants. Her grandfather moved to Helvetia in the 1870s when the community was just forming. Um, my uh, family was from the Bern, the Canton Bern, from the Sonnen area, and that was the Bettlers. When Theron's husband Russell retired recently, the couple wanted to pick up a new hobby. They settled on making cheese, but not just any cheese. Theron and Russell wanted to make the kind of cheese Theron's grandfather and other early Helvetia residents made. But that would mean reviving a family tradition that had been dormant for decades. A tradition that takes knowledge, skill, and the right environmental conditions. Theron didn't have her grandfather's recipe after he passed. But she knew her neighbor Nancy could help. She just said, Nancy, will you, will you show me how to make cheese? And I said, yes. That's Nancy Gain. And we're miles away from each other, connecting via Zoom. Her ancestors are from the same region in Switzerland as Theron's, and she remembers her mother making cheese as a child, the same kind of cheese Theron's grandfather made. And it was the same recipe that everyone made here. And uh, I believe it was what was made high up in the Alps. With Nancy's guidance, Theron was able to recreate the recipe and knowledge of cheesemaking that had been lost in her family. We just went down and I told her, you know, what I knew and what just from from experience of how I did it. But they were needed more than just a recipe. To make this particular type of cheese, she needed a key ingredient, fresh cow milk. Theron didn't have her own dairy cow and neither did Nancy. Well, it, it's it's hard because no one no one wants to milk. You know, if if they raise cattle, it's usually uh, beef cattle and not they don't want to have a, a family cow. Used to be everybody had to have a family cow to have milk. It's not that way anymore. Theron has a friend nearby that still has a milk cow, so she's able to get the necessary ingredient. We're really blessed to be able to live in a place where it's not just that you have neighbors but you have family. When, you know, your neighbor needs something, they come and you give it to them. It's just no big deal. You know, it's not like you don't have to pay this back. You know, I took some cheese up to my neighbor one day and he come back and the next thing I know, he's not going to adore with the package of sausage, you know, because he had made sausage that day. It's just a real... Um, family-oriented type of situation. With help from her neighbors, Theron was on her way to making her first batches of cheese. Theron's husband, Russell, even built them their very own cheese cave, a cold and humid storage room right in their basement. Now, they had the perfect controlled climate for aging cheese. All the old farmers was making cheese in their kitchen, and then they were curing it or aging it in their cellar. And in those cellars, you have dirt floor, um, rocks that, are, you know, are moldy and, you know, a perfect situation for aging cheese. With the right recipe, the essential ingredients, and the ideal environment, Theron and Russell's hobby took off. The nostalgic taste of the cheese reminded community members like Nancy of the cheese their parents and grandparents used to make. Also, it's good. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we all like it, and it's a special treat, so we... You know, you try to have it and, and uh, like, oh, I've got some I've got some homemade cheese, you know. Cheese making is a laborious process, and many community members don't take the time and effort to make it these days. 
Demand for the cheese began to soar, and Thayrin and Russell started to sell their cheese, which they call Appalachian Alpine, down at Swiss Roots, the local Helvetia market. And it was a surprise when we took the first load down to them the first week, and within 24 hours they were out. West Virginia has expansive cottage food laws that allow individuals to sell products, including milk-based products like cheese, that are made in their own homes. And it is a delicacy. It's, you know, we're the only ones, you know, Helvetia people are the only ones that has ever made, that we know of, this type of cheese that it was brought over, the recipe was brought over with our ancestors from Switzerland. And so it was a, a tradition that was being shut down. So the legislature uh, was nice enough, some of the uh, members was nice enough to create a bill to waiver all of that. So now that we can uh, make the cheese in our own kitchen and, and cure it in the cellars. Although the cheese is now available in the community, there's a real concern Theron has about Swiss traditions like cheese making being lost as the younger generations move away. So she's made sure to share this recipe and process with her granddaughter, Georgia. Well, she's always been very much into like canning foods and um, doing all kinds of different things. And uh, like we've made things like dandelion jelly and like just a bunch of cool different things. So it wasn't too strange when she started making cheese. Georgia doesn't live in Helvetia, but she visits every so often and has enjoyed learning the process of cheese making alongside her grandmother. I I think it's really fun um, after you boil it and then like you have to cut it and um, the part where you stick your arm in or like your hand in to like get the cheese curds all separated. That's my favorite part because it's so soft and like smooth and then your hands feel so soft afterwards. I have um, a couple of friends though that have come up and they like refused to put their hand in it because they thought it was gross, but I love it. <laughs> Seeing the enthusiasm of Georgia gives Theron hope that the community of Helvetia will grow again and preserve not just the tradition of cheese making, but other Swiss traditions as well. And there are several of us my age is still here in the community I think that's why we want to make sure that our kids and our grandkids know how to do these things like making cheese and canning and things like that. So we know that that type of thing and those traditions are carried on. Even the, the Swiss traditions like the folk dancing and the, you know, all that type of thing. Um, so we know that that will be carried on to the next generation. Making a block of cheese isn't just a day's work. It takes weeks or months to age the cheese to perfection. If you have the patience and dedication, however, the result is delicious. I like it on um, with homemade bread and tomato sandwich. Or just slice it with a glass of wine. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin. Lauren's story was part of our ongoing Folkways series. In 2022, Folkways reporters filed around 40 different stories on topics ranging from mushroom hunters and people who raise honeybees to guitar surgeons, funeral singers, and snake handling music. You can hear them all on our website, wvpublic.org. Coming up, we said goodbye to an American hero and listened to an American icon talk about the importance of books. Get that little kid going, and it'll learn to love the books, the smell of books, the touch of books, and just, you know, it just really opens their little minds to possibilities. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Bill Lynch. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu.
In June, the nation said goodbye to its last living World War II Medal of Honor recipient. Herschel Woodrow Wilson, or Woody, was from Quiet Dell, West Virginia. He died at the age of 98. Aside from his military decorations and honors, Williams was an advocate for veterans and veterans' issues for decades. Following his passing, tributes from elected officials on both sides of the aisle poured in. We pay tribute, too, with an excerpt of Trey Kay's interview with Wilson for Us and Them. The Civilian Conservation Corps took Williams to Montana, where he spent about a year building fences. But his time with the CCC came to an abrupt end on December 7th, 1941. Yeah, so that's where I was when Pearl Harbor was bombed and um, they announced that America was going to war and that those that were over 18 years of age, you could enlist and go straight into the Army from there. But if you're under 18, then you had to have a parent consent, and I, did, I was only 17. Okay. So they put me on a train and sent me back to West Virginia. But I wanted to become a, uh, a Marine. Why, why a Marine? Well, I had two brothers who were drafted in early 1942, and they had to wear their Army uniform, that old brown woolen Army uniform. And I thought that's the ugly thing, but... Uh, you, you thought the Army uniform was ugly? Uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, the Marine Corps dress blues were so much more neat. You know? <laughs> and we had a couple guys in the community that had gone into the Marine Corps at different times. They weren't even related. But in those days, you got home one time a year. And you had to wear a uniform. The Marine Corps required you to wear a uniform all the time you were home. And they would do that. And, of course, people were just, particularly girls, liked those dress blue uniforms. <laughs> and I thought, well, that, that's the way to go. That was a benefit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a month after his 18th birthday, Woody Williams went to a recruiter's office and told them that he wanted to be a Marine. But there was one question on the paperwork he got from the recruiter that tripped him up. One of the questions was religion. And he had said a number of times as we were filling out these forms, everything on this form must be complete or it will not be accepted. Yeah. And I didn't know what to put in that block of religion. I didn't have any. I'd never been to church in my life. We didn't have a church in the community. Uh, my mother had a Bible. And that's where we kept all of our records. That's, she kept records of marriages, deaths, and births. So what'd you put down? Well, well, I, I didn't know what to put in there. And I was going to ask the recruiter what I should put in there. And I'm standing behind a little Italian boy that's a little shorter than me. And he's got his paper ready to give to the recruiter. And I just look over his shoulder and I see the letter C in there. And I became a Catholic right then. <laughs> When I got to boot camp out in San Diego, I had to go to Mass on Sunday morning. <laughs> Couldn't understand a word they said. They were talking in Latin. I didn't know what it was, but that's what they were speaking in. <laughs> My dog tag shows I was a Catholic. And had I been killed, I would have gotten the last rites, whether I won them or not. Because yeah, I was listed as a Catholic. After basic training, Williams shipped out to Guam, a, a small island in the Philippine Sea. His basic training focused on all-purpose infantry skills. But one day, a bunch of weird-looking boxes showed up in Guam for his division. We got a whole bunch of them, so we broke the boxes open to see what, you know, there's supposed to be a supply of something. And here are flamethrowers that none of us had ever seen before. We didn't even know it existed. Williams and his fellow Marines thumbed through the instruction manual for the flamethrowers. What they saw was disturbing. They had to strap flammable liquid onto their backs and go into combat. We were concerned that it might explode on your back. It's got gasoline in That's there. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah. So we set it out in the field all by itself, and then we got away from it and shot at it with M1 rifles and machine guns to see if we could explode that thing. If it's going to explode out there, it could explode back here on your back, you know. We could never penetrate the metal. It was too thick, heavy, real heavy steel. That's what made it weigh so much. 
Williams experienced combat in Guam, but it was when his battalion set out for Iwo Jima that he remembers being terrified. In 36 days, the Marines had lost 7,000 men. And we lost almost 5,000 people the first day. Yeah. So uh, after that first day, and losing, having lost so many Marines, that we were told that night of the first day, we are going ashore tomorrow. So they got us up, we ate chow at 3 o'clock in the morning, and then did, got off the ships at 5, into Higgins boats, and went out in a rendezvous area where the Higgins boats were circling, waiting for the ship, the uh, shore master to say, come on in, we got room. Well, take me to that moment. What was that like? You're in the Higgins boat, and you're basically coming up to the beach at Iwo Jima. What was that? What's that memory like? Very, very scary. When the ramp drops, we were told, when the ramp drops, that's what we call it, a ramp, everybody goes, you know, quickly. Because as soon as you hit, you spread out so that you won't be a target, you know. You don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know whether you're going to run into a machine gun or rifleman or whatever. I can remember when we got to the beach, it was so chaotic. The uh, 4th Marine Division, which was in the sector where we were, they'd been pinned there for all day and all night and the next day. They finally broke through the Japanese line and began to move forward and toward Mount Suribachi. That was their objective, was to take Mount Suribachi. And <clears throat> that gave us room to come in. And uh, that uh, was actually the second day of the campaign. Uh, there was just bodies everywhere. There were packs and, and uh, tanks blown up and trucks blown up and jeeps blown over and I mean, it was Mayhem. Mayhem. But seeing all that, but the, the thing that stuck with my mind and has always been there and it, it'll never go away, with all the Marines that have been killed, in addition to Navy corpsmen, they had no place to bury them. They couldn't send them back to ships, had no way of transporting them back to the ships. So they rolled them in their ponchos. Everybody had to carry a poncho and just stack them up like cordwood and there were great numbers of them. And I remember seeing that, and they were stacked right along the edge of the, uh, the beach, just, just above the water level where it came in. Uh, and eventually, uh, in order to do something with them, they dug a huge trench and uh, stretched a rope across the front of it or on one side of it and they put the one person's dog tag on the rope and the other dog tag on the person. We had two dog tags. They put the dog tag on the rope and then one with the person so they would know that's the individual in this location. And then they just placed them body by side, side by side, in a big deep trench and then covered them over with a bulldozer. That was their burial site until we got cemeteries built. Once we got the cemeteries built, then they exhumed and placed them in the cemetery. In late July, historic flooding hit parts of eastern Kentucky and western Virginia, killing 34 and damaging or destroying homes, businesses, and schools. One of the places affected by the disaster was the town of Hindman in Knott County, Kentucky, home to the Hindman Settlement School. Rain and floodwaters came while the school was hosting its annual Appalachian Writers Conference. I spoke with some of the riders who'd watched the waters rise, flood buildings, and carry off cars. Amanda Sloan said up until the rains began, her week at the Appalachian Writers Workshop at the Hindman Settlement School in Hindman, Kentucky, had been a good one. It was beautiful as always. The workshop is always my favorite week of the year. It's been going since 2006. It's been a transformative experience for me as a writer and as a person. Uh, the community we've built there, the people that we've met, you know, you, you build a family that your chosen family outside of, of home. And uh, so it always feels sort of like a family reunion during that week. And we get to spend the week together with like-minded people talking about the things that we love. The Hindman Settlement School, founded 120 years ago, is a local institution and repository for Appalachian learning and culture. They teach traditional Appalachian arts and educate writers. The Appalachian Writers Workshop was in its 45th year. 
Robert Guype had been at the workshop to visit with other riders. He said none of them expected to get caught in a flood. The rains came so hard and so fast, and in the dead of night, we were up talking and visiting when uh, Matt Parsons came in at 2 o'clock in the morning and told us we better move our cars. The, the settlement school is on the banks of a troublesome creek there in Knott County, right, right in downtown Hyman, and... Um, the creek had broken out of his banks, and his banks were unrecognizable. And by the time that Matt came to alert us to the danger, his car was already submerged in the lower parking lot. And then several other people who were attending their workshops, I know one friend lost a pickup truck, a rental car was lost, some personal cars were lost. I mean, it, was, it had come up so fast, and then that divided the campus, and so we couldn't, we couldn't call, or we couldn't get people from across the creek. We were staying in some of the residential spaces across the creek to get over to move their vehicles. And so it was just kind of tragic sitting there watching stuff get carried off. Sloan was one of the workshop participants who was staying off campus. I can remember the text message kind of woke me up. And it was my friend Matt, and he said, my car is gone. And I was really groggy. I was kind of in that that in-between sleep and awake stage, so I didn't really uh, understand what he was saying. And I guess I dozed back off, and then my roommate shook me awake and said, you know, you have to get up. We have to we have to get out of here. So we got up about 3 o'clock that morning. I didn't really know what was going on at the time other than, you know, we were concerned about hill slides. So we went to another building there on campus that's a little bit, you know, higher up, that, but on a stable hill, not right close to the hillside. And we gathered on the front porch, and we sat there until the sun came up. Guy said people moved to higher ground. We were able to gather everybody in eventually, and uh, we retreated kind of up the mountain. Like It was terrifying. In the moment, you don't think about the aftermath. You're just, like, trying to get through the night. But, of course, when, you know, we got up the next morning, it, it was a disaster area. Sloan said they couldn't see how bad the flooding was until after sunrise. We saw that the water had gotten up into um, the building where we have our our main building is sort of all the readings and things that evening. The offices are underneath. There's a little cabin on campus. It's called Uncle Saul's Cabin, and the water was um, up pretty high on the walls there. There's a historic footbridge that is sort of the image that we all associate with the Hunman Settlement School. And we really couldn't tell if the bridge was even still standing. All we could see was debris. Some of us walked around town to see um, just how bad things were and, and what we saw. I mean, I, I really felt like... It was unlike anything I've ever seen. We saw people's cars had been swept away. Some cars were on their tops. Uh, we saw buildings that had just, you know, just debris and, and outside furniture and, you know, piled up along the sides. It was, it was a horrifying experience. When she was finally able to leave, Sloan said the destruction from the flood seemed to be everywhere. I saw homes that were literally, I mean, pieces of homes that were in the middle of the road. There was a set of steps, and I'm not sure what kind of building the steps came from, very large set of steps right in the middle of an intersection. There was a coroner's car next to a lot of the debris. And then I got to Route 80, and, you know, you're on the highway and coming home, and it sort of seems like things have cleared up, and you can't really tell, you know, that anything is wrong in that area. And then you drive upon where the small towns are on the side of the roads, and all I could see was water that was up as high as the road, the tips of the roofs in the water. Everyone from the Appalachian Riders Workshop eventually made it home, though some had to deal with flooding in their home communities. The slow process of cleaning up, repairing, and seeing what could be saved began immediately as the waters receded. Emergency services arrived, aid came, people volunteered time, money, and energy to help. Robert Guy returned to Hindman. He said he spoke with one of the rescue teams. There was a Middle Creek rescue team. And they'd been out, you know, busting their tails, saving people, getting people out of their houses. And I said, how long do y'all think y'all are going to be on this kind of this kind of high alert? And one of them said, forever. One of them said, a year. And one of them said, until the weatherman tells us to stop raining. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Bill Lynch. After the waters began to recede, we've continued to bring you news about the recovery and rebuilding efforts in Kentucky with stories from the Ohio Valley Resources' Katie Myers and Folkways reporter Nicole Musgrave. The Folkways program gave us some of our favorite stories in 2022. Reporters filed stories from all over central Appalachia about ballads and ballad singers, a Welsh singing tradition that's endured in Ohio, and a reclaimed segregated cemetery in Bluefield, Virginia. One of our favorites was a visit to the hometown of host Mason Adams and the Floyd Country Store. 
The town of Floyd in Floyd County, Virginia is small, about 400 year-round residents, but on Friday nights, the population doubles, triples, maybe even gets bigger than that, with people traveling from all over to attend Floyd's Friday night jamboree. Mason Adams brought us this story. In the summer, music spills from the main stage and dance floor in the Floyd Country Store out onto the sidewalk. And that's where I first saw Chad Ritchie and Robbie Harmon. I'm going to Western Country now, Susan Anna. Chad's on the fiddle, and Robbie's playing banjo. They traveled up two hours from Wilkesboro, North Carolina. This is my first time. I think you've been here. Yeah, I've been to Floyd several times, yeah. And what's kept you coming back? The music. Why are y'all here tonight? The music. The music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, just coming up here, it's like, wow, it's like everything revolves around the music. You know, it seems like where we're from, music kind of, you know, you fit it in with your life. Around here, music is life. The main event each Friday is the jamboree that takes place inside the Floyd Country Store. But there's a whole scene. Here's David Easterly, one of the greeters inside the jamboree. We have the uh, the gospel band, 6.30 to 7.30, dance band, 7.30 to 10. Come in here, go outside, people dance in here, dance outside. Inside or outside, you find all kinds of folks. Locals like Curtis Newell, who lives nearby and has a reserved seat. We've got a lot of friends here. It's been coming for 20 or 30 years. And, you know, you come every week basically a lot to see them. Or a music school graduate from South Carolina, who along with her husband traveled up on a church friend's recommendation. I'm just here to take it all in. This isn't really the genre that I'm most familiar with. You know, I do opera professionally, um, so it's a bit of a change, but I'm really excited, especially for the gospel set. Now, Floyd County is a politically red county. Republicans pretty reliably win about two-thirds of the vote each year. But at the Jamboree, you find people of all political persuasions, dancing, singing, and playing music together. Kirsten Griffiths says that's one thing she likes about the Jamboree. It's diversity of all kinds. It is funny because, you know, some of us have some agreements. We kind of can pleasantly tease each other politically because we are going to be on complete and utter opposite ends of the spectrum, but we will dance together most of the time. (laughs) I heard from people time and again about how friendly the dance floor is. Floyd local and Jamboree regular Roger Dickerson still remembers the first time he went up on the dance floor. I've always loved bluegrass, but I didn't know how to dance. And I come up here one, one Friday night, and a girl from Bassett come up here and jerked me out of the seat, and she said, you're going to learn how to dance. And I said, you let go of my hand, I'm running back to my seat. It scared me to death, because I'm all, I'm all feet. And she showed me how to flat foot, and I've been doing it ever since. And I tell people all the time, I said, you come to dance? And they said, no, we're just curious. We want to hear the music. I said, the music is good, but I said, when you get out on that floor, it's another world. One of the first music circles that got going outside was made up of kids. They're just learning how to play fiddles, banjos, and guitars at the country store's handmade music school. College student Sophie Meckel, who's been teaching the youth class, leads them through a rendition of Short and Bread. Their moms and dads sit around the perimeter, visiting, listening to the music, smiling and clapping. Morgan Grimm is one of those moms. She praises Floyd's music community for being so welcoming. Even these kids you're watching now, some of them are strumming for the first time, but there's an invitation of coming being part of this music community. Well, we're Chris and Fiona. Last year we set out from Europe to come across the Atlantic on a sailing boat and uh, spent the winter in the Caribbean and then have, uh, came up to Chesapeake uh, about two months ago. And then we decided to explore in land a bit. Uh, we wanted to see some bluegrass music. So here we are. If you came from an awfully long, we know we got North Carolina, we got Arkansas, so we already know some folks traveled a good long way to be here with us. At intermission during the Jamboree, Dylan Locke always comes out, does a raffle, and awards a Floyd Country Store baseball cap. 
to whoever came from farthest away. Um, so if you think you traveled farther away, then yell it out, please. England. England? All right, well, there we go. That's farther away than Arkansas, Amanda. So England's from farthest away, so we'll get you all up here in just a minute. Anybody from pretty far away and want to yell it out and love where you're from and want to tell us that? West Palm Beach. West Palm Beach, Maryland. Kenya. Kenya. That's pretty far away. So tell us your name and what brings you here from Kenya. My name is Nyambura and um, I got married uh, to, to Eric. So that's why I'm here. We drove from Virginia. So um, technically I shouldn't be getting the hat because we drove from Woodbridge, but I am from Kenya. So I still think you should go to the people from England. Give it to them. Okay. All right. Well, hey, that was very generous of you and it was really nice to meet you. Yeah. And, and congratulations. After the jamboree, I caught up with Nambora Kiari and asked what brought her to Floyd. Turns out, she and Eric found it in a guidebook. And there's another reason. Growing up in Kenya, we listened to a lot of country music, but the old school country music, like Don Williams and uh, Dolly Patton, and the country music that I listened to growing up sounds so much like bluegrass music. So when I listen to bluegrass music, it reminds me of home. And that's the true magic of the Friday Night Jamboree. It doesn't matter if you're from Floyd, or from England or from Kenya. If you're a Democrat or Republican. If you're two or 92. It just feels like home. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Mason Adams in Floyd, Virginia. Music is a rich part of Appalachian culture, but when people think of Appalachian music, they often think of banjos, fiddles, and old-time string bands. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But on Inside Appalachia, we've always tried to show the diversity of the region. Oh, sure, you're going to hear plenty of fiddle and banjo tunes here. But over the past year, we've played some jazz, folk, country, even a little death metal. We've also tried to introduce you to some Appalachian musicians who've captured our attention, like East Tennessee's Amethyst Kia. Mason Adams interviewed the singer-songwriter back in June. They talked about her life, her roots, and her music. But here she is singing her song, Black Myself. Give it a listen. It's a real banger. It was almost like an appearance by a head of state, or royalty. This summer, American music legend and recent Rock and Roll Music Hall of Fame inductee Dolly Parton came to Charleston. The acclaimed singer, songwriter, actress, and philanthropist was in West Virginia to celebrate the state's full 55-county participation in Dolly Parton's Imagination Library. That's an early childhood literacy program she started in 1995 from her home in Sevier County, Tennessee. The goal of the program is to put books in the hands of children. Each month, Imagination Library provides a free book to participating children aged birth to five. It's been a huge success, and the program sends books to children all over the world. In August, WVPB's Suzanne Higgins spoke with Parton at a special event at the Clay Center in Charleston. Dolly Parton, welcome to West Virginia on what is now uh, the Dolly Parton Imagination Library Day. Well, to have a day named after our Imagination Library is a wonderful thing, and I'm always glad to be in West Virginia. Everybody's been good to me through the years. 
Now, the Imagination Library is, of course, your early childhood uh, literacy program that you started almost 30 years ago. It has spread from your original, your home county, to really a worldwide program. For you to see a state like West Virginia, small, rural, certainly with challenges of poverty throughout our state. To see West Virginia embrace your program, the Imagination Library, really invest and partner with your foundation, it must be very gratifying in terms of what you set out to do so many years ago. Well, it is very gratifying and I'm very touched by it. And the people of West Virginia are just like the people in my home state of Tennessee and the way we grew up, knowing how hard times could be. But the Imagination Library is for all children, not just children that are having hard times, but children, I think, Really, their little minds are open to learning things, and I think if we can get books in their hands, teach them to read, you know, when they're young, in their most impressionable years, I think that's always a wonderful thing. Tell us a little bit about how the program works. Uh, a family member registers a, a child, hopefully a, a newborn, so they can go through the, the program until age five. What can that family expect? Well, first of all, people do need to know that. A lot of people don't understand that this, there's no money involved for them. All the parents have to do is to register the child. And that little child gets a book a month, and it comes in the mail with their own little name on it. So as soon as they get big enough to know they're getting this book, they run to that mailbox and they bring it in and have someone else to sit down and, and read with them, which is great. It's kind of a great way to bring families together, too, whether it's a parent or a grandparent or brother or sister. But it's a wonderful thing just to register and get that little kid going, and it'll learn to love the books, the smell of books, the touch of books, and just, you know, it just really opens their little minds to possibilities. Talk about the inspiration for the Imagination Library. Well, the way I started the Imagination Library was back in my home area of Sevier County, Tennessee. My dad, like so many there, like so many here in West Virginia, they were hardworking people living on farms, and we, you know, they didn't have, uh, they had a bunch of kids, and the schoolhouses were miles away, and most of them didn't get a chance to go to school, and they couldn't learn. They didn't learn to read and write. My own father, that's who I started the program for. And my dad was kind of, he was smart, so smart, and just knew how to do everything, but he just could not read and write, and he felt he was too old to, to learn. So I thought, I need to do something to lift that burden off of him, because he's such a good daddy and such a good man and so smart. And so I said, Daddy, why don't we start a program, you know, where we give books to children from the time they're born till they start school, and that way they can learn to read in their young years. And so we started out thinking, well, maybe it would go a few counties over. The next thing you know, the governor at that time, Phil Bredesen took it all over the state and it went into Canada and now we're basically all over the world because my sweet daddy and me uh, thought up the idea to get on out there and do something and my dad took great pride in that. The books have messages. Talk about, we, we understand that the first book every child receives is a favorite childhood book of yours. Well, it's a favorite childhood book, period. And it was a, a childhood book of mine. But I still love that little book today. I even wrote a song for a children's uh, album that I did that kind of was based on things that we put through the Imagination Library, different books that we had I wrote songs about. And I wrote a little song about the little engine that could because that's really the... the the, the one that we start the program out with, as you mentioned. And so it just really shows children. It just builds their confidence if they're shy or they're afraid and they think they can't do it. And so uh, it's about, I can, I think I can, I think I can, I know I can, I will. And so I've always kind of likened my life to that little engine and I often say that I'm, I'm proof of that. I'm a little engine that did. So, I mean, I kept dreaming, I kept pushing, and I still do to this day because whatever the mountain is, I'm going to get up there and I'm going to climb it until I can see what's on the other side so but we love we you know we love knowing that little book is in there and the little song I wrote was kind of about that you know just be you you know it's like woo 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 I can do it, so can you, woo, 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 I believe in you. So the little song's called I Believe in You, but it takes all the little pieces out of that little book to kind of, you know, give it a little springboard for what the message is in the song. It's very much what it is in the book, that you can do it. We spoke a, a little bit about your father. I'd like you to uh, talk a little bit about your mother. You are leaving something with West Virginia today that ties back directly to your mother. 
I am. My mom and dad were both very important to all of us. They had that house full of kids. Mom and daddy had 12 kids, six girls and six boys. And so they kept the family together. Mama kind of was that thread, if you'll pardon the expression, that sewed us all together, kept us all together. And the little book that I'm, uh, that's also one of the books that's in the Imagination Library is the story of my little coat of many colors because it touches on just acceptance, and it's about bullying, also that kind of an idea, but to show that people are different, and it's okay to be different. You can't persecute someone just because they're different. You know, we're all just part of that quilt. We're the fabric, you know, of, of God's world, you know, and so we kind of have to sew all those little pieces and know that they're all beautiful in that quilt of life. So Mama made my little coat of many colors and told me the story of Joseph, you know, from the Bible about that just to make me proud of it. But Mama was wonderful in that way. Daddy had his job, Mama had hers, and they worked together to kind of keep that family going. And if you're lucky enough to have good parents, that's, that's a wonderful gift, truly. As we wrap up here, as you're about to take the stage, any final thoughts about uh, the Imagination Library program here and your visit to West Virginia. I just appreciate everybody that's taken such an interest and in working so hard and believing in it and loving what they're doing. I met all the people when we were doing a little meet and greet you know, before we go on to do the show. But I could tell they, they were taking great pride in it. And I took great pride in feeling that, knowing that they really believe in this like I believe in it. So I just really appreciate it. And I just want to say, keep it up and we'll be supporting you, supporting us, supporting them. So it's all about the kids anyway. Dolly Parton, thank you so well, much. Well, thank you. Nice to see you. For the entire interview, check out An Evening with Dolly celebrating the Imagination Library. That's at wvpublic.org. Back through the years I go wandering once again Back to the seasons of my youth I recall a box of rags that someone gave us and how my mama put the rags to use There were rags of many colors But every piece was small And I didn't have a coat And it was away down in the fall Mama sewed the rags together So in every piece we loved She made my coat of many colors That I was so proud of there were really too many good stories in 2022 to fit into a single hour. We picked a few we liked. You probably have some favorites, and maybe there are some you might have missed. In fact, if you're interested, you can find a whole bunch of Inside Appalachia shows and Folkway stories on our website, wvpublic.org. The archives just seem to go for miles and miles and miles. You can listen to those shows whenever you want, like maybe on a long holiday drive to see your in-laws. Till next time, thanks for joining us as we journey through Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Tyler Childers, David Mumford, Andrea Tomasi, Amethyst Kia, and Dolly Parton. Bill Lynch, that's me, is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, educating the people of our region and beyond for more than 150 years. More information at concord.edu.